Hey, Jamie. Hey, what's up, Tim? You know, in the TV episode of Madam Secretary that we watched, uh, we learned that the entire nuclear command and control system is entirely dependent on people reading codes and attack plans out of binders. So many binders. It's like an episode of Parks and Recreation where Leslie Note becomes president and Jerry confuses a flock of birds for a nuclear attack. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. I'm not joined today by my usual co-host, Gabe, uh, because he's out avoiding my calls after I pranked him one too many times that he should seek shelter because of an incoming nuclear missile attack. Some people seem like just can't take a joke. Uh, but fortunately, I am uh, joined instead today by an awesome guest, Jamie Withorn, a recent graduate of Columbia University, a founding member of Women of Mass Destruction, an advisory board member of Girl Security, and a policy intern at Global Zero. Jamie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I know uh, you are out in California having a good time. Uh, I appreciate you waking up so early and coming up <laughs> on the podcast over Skype. Yeah. You actually, I think, approached me about the podcast because you really wanted to do an episode on what we're going to talk about today, uh, which is uh, Madam Secretary, the TV show starring, is it Tia Leone? Correct. Yeah. Yep. As uh, as a, the Secretary of State who is uh, coming out of a career out of the CIA and she's a hard-nosed, policy-oriented, you know, tough political actor going up against uh, some really difficult uh, resistance, whether it's like people in the government or people uh, in foreign countries that are that are, she's trying to have to re- grapple with. And it happens to be that the finale of season four, an uh, episode called Night Watch, had a lot of nuclear content. So I'm really glad. I don't watch this show, but I'm really glad that you brought this to my attention. So I appreciate you uh, bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. But we normally we're, we're here to talk about silly topics like how nukes are portrayed in popular culture. But we're also here to talk a little bit about your work that you've done uh, on bringing women into the international security realm, into nonproliferation in particular. Because this is a field that's, you know, for a long time, it's been largely dominated by, by older white men. So I appreciate all the work that you've done here. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that before we get started on the 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 how does this TV show portray <laughs> nuclear weapons? Right. Absolutely. Great. So as you mentioned, briefly before, um, I'm currently well, the, the founder and manager of a website I created called womenofmassdestruction.org. And with this website, really, I'm just trying to kind of create a sort of academic commons to bring all of the work women are doing in both international security and nuclear security, kind of more specifically, into one uh, site. So it's easy access for that. Because a lot of times you hear the argument, oh, yeah, we want to include women, we just don't know where the work is. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to make that not an excuse, right? So I created a website that focuses on both media kind of references to women in like uh, news media, um, women in academia. So kind of writings and textbooks and make, I provided some tools on how to make sure you're at your syllabus. If you're a professor or um, a teacher can be gender kind of inclusive. So there's a tool that calculates it. And then I also have a social media page um, that that essentially has my Twitter feed where I'm always retweeting um, all sorts of different kind of resources for women. So that's at, at woman underscore WMD. And with that one, I do again, focus on like, like here's more lists and feeds because if as soon as you start looking, there's a ton of resources out there that are um, working on amplifying and uh, highlighting women's work. And so I just thought that it'd be useful to have like a running list there. And so that's kind of what my website tries to do. And so far, it's been a great um, adventure. And I'm learning that there are so many websites out there. So there's really no more like of an excuse not to include women, I think, in the dialogue. Yeah, that's uh, that excuse is rapidly dwindling. Um, yeah. <laughs> what was the, what has the response been like from say? I'm really interested. I didn't know that aspect you had with the syllabus. You know, how how has the response been to to that particular aspect? Yeah, absolutely. So people actually have been um, reaching out a lot via Twitter and saying suggesting um, uh, works to focus on, which I think is super helpful because as one person, I can't possibly find all of mm-hmm. the women, women are authored uh, nuclear security or security related pieces. So it's very helpful when people do reach out to me. And on the website, I do encourage 
hey, if you want to be focused or if your work wants to be focused, go ahead and do that. I've also kind of shared it with my professors back at Columbia. I've said, hey, based on this one international security course I took, like I, there was one woman author. Maybe you mm. can uh, fix that for future courses. Here's a, some helpful tools. So I've been kind of taking that initiative more so in the kind of actual institutionalized aspect of it. And I think it's going out over really well. That, that's terrific. I know that there's this effort um, to eliminate mantles, uh, which are all male panels. on Right, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in our field, there's lots of panel discussions, uh, and I've been responsible for organizing a lot of them. And, you know, there's certainly times in the past where I, maybe it wasn't consciously an excuse, you know, oh, I can't find a, a female to be on the panel. But it's one of those things where people are making a very strong pledge to, uh, you know, either organizing a panel make sure you have you know equal representation where you can if, if you're on a panel and you realize there's no one else that's on that panel and everyone looks like you uh there's no you want to say i refuse to be on this panel unless you find out somebody else that can be on here and here are some resources such as the one jamie is working on so i like that pledge i hope to see uh, more of those uh people will call them out if you have a panel that doesn't have equal representation you know things right. like that are the exact great ways to amplify diversity because this field needs it. And uh, I'm happy to see that this is going well. Yeah, absolutely. And my um, other initiative, I'm, I'm taking part of this project called Girl Security, where I'm an advisor board. And so essentially, what this project aims to do is to integrate like national security curriculum to high school girls. Oh, okay. And so Lauren out of uh, Boston kind of started up this project. And essentially what it is, is focusing on an earlier age to really um, start the conversation and, and start thinking about like critical issues such as national security at an earlier age so they can kind of better develop themselves within national security as they go through college. Because I, I know, for example, I didn't know that I liked national security specifically until I was a sophomore in college. Mm. And so it's I think it's really important to start the dialogue early. I think it's a really unique approach to the curriculum as well, because she talks a lot about how what makes you feel secure as a girl or what makes you feel secure as um, a student. And they all say like, oh, like X, Y and Z, just like in general. And then she goes on to kind of relate that back to national security. So I think it's a fantastic program that's just kind of sort of taking off. And I'm super excited to be involved with that. That's awesome. Uh, well, one thing to think about as we kind of do our discussions here about Madam Secretary is, do you think that this was, is a good resource that people should put on either a syllabus or to show it in classrooms? You know, does this show do a good job of uh, bringing that piece of this discussion that's often missing? Because I know we're here really to talk about the, you know, what what people get right, what people get wrong, or like, what are the interesting themes? But Obviously, every piece of pop culture is a lot of what people, how they first learn about these kind of topics. Uh, people learn about nuclear weapons because of movies or TV show that they've seen. Often it's not because they read a book about, you know, deterrence theory. They're not reading, you know, Herman <laughs> Kahn uh, deterrence theory. You know, they're, they're, they're watching uh, Dr. Strangelove. This is my artful transition into talking about episode 22 of season four of Madam Secretary Nightwatch. Uh, it first aired on May 20th in 2018. It was written by the show's creator and producer, uh, Barbara Hall and David Gray, but it was informed in part by several members of our esteemed nuclear nonproliferation community, people such as uh, former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz, uh, former Minuteman ICBM launch officer Bruce Blair, uh, and Seth Gray, who is the president and CEO of Lightbridge Corporation, a company that deals with nuclear fuel technology, uh, and the brother of David Gray. And um, this is all leading up to the fact that Jamie and I, when we first met, we went to a screening of the show, uh, which was done through the Nuclear Security Working Group, a kind of partnership in D.C. that holds roundtable discussions and tries to bring together a bipartisan consensus on these kind of topics. And we got to hear from Seth Gray, as well as people such as former Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, Tom Countryman. So we got to hear not only the, what people who wrote the show thought about it, but people who informed the episode and, and, and kind of a Oh, a smarter people version of the podcast that I do, which is to have people talk about what was right, what was wrong, and what were the kind of the messages that they hope people would be, that watch the show get out of it. So did you did you enjoy that experience? We had some popcorn and watched watched a movie at a fancy place. <laughs> yeah, it was it was super fancy, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun to get all the fancier people together to watch kind of a show that I think is more like what everybody watches. So it brought them down to my level, which is pretty cool. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, all right, so let's run through the plot of the TV episode. Um, and again, as usual, spoiler warning: if you haven't seen uh, Madam Secretary and you want to. You know, I don't. There's not like a ton of spoilers in here. You know, it's not like the world ends or anything. Uh, maybe that is a spoiler for us already here. <laughs> um, the TV show does not end with nuclear war. Um, there will be a fifth season. It's actually going to be 
uh, starting pretty soon, I think in like a week or two. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons why we're wanting to do the episode we are now. Uh, but yeah, so how about we, we go back and forth on the, the plot here? We'll, we'll talk, we'll stop, take some breaks to talk about some of the nuclear content. Uh, but why don't you start us off? Because you said you've seen a few more episodes of Madam Secretary than I. I have right. not I have not watched it uh, more than the episode that we watched for the podcast, but seems like a pretty good, entertaining show. People seem like they really enjoy it. You want to start us off here about the episode Night Watch? So um, the episode begins off with uh, Teo Leone acting as Secretary of State Elizabeth McCord and her family. So her husband's kind of the CIA guy, and she has three uh, children who are just kind of, I guess, stereotypical high school children concerned about their cell phones and all that jazz. <laughs> um, and so they're trying to do a walking um, tour over the, at the Lincoln Memorial and trying to kind of disconnect their kids. Um, kids aren't having it, as you yep. can expect <laughs> with some high school kids. And so... Um, while they're kind of doing that, you, the, the camera pans to other staff, um, so including the president, who are like out walking their dogs or playing golf, um, and it just kind of seems like a nice, normal Washington morning. morning. Yeah, it seemed like their day off, like on the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was at when the National Security Advisor's phone rings with like an eerie, very scary kind of ringtone thing, indicating that a stratcom um, is calling. This is NSA Ellen Hill. Which is never a nice uh, weekend thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they're never just calling <laughs> to say hi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so early warning satellite um, has detected multiple Russian launches, kind of is what the Stratcom goes into. And that's where the show picks up, I guess. <laughs> what the hell is it? Early warning satellites detected multiple Russian launches. What? Selikov can't be that crazy. He said he feels back after Syria. By launching nukes? Cover Falcon! Cover Falcon! CIA psych eval of Salnikov indicated volatility and mood swings. We just killed 300 Russians in Aleppo. Mr. President, I have threat come. What do you want to see? Yes, sir. Colonel McPherson is on the line. Colonel McPherson, what's the state rep? Mr. President, Esparza is now tracking more than 400 Russian ICBMs heading for U.S. mainland. It's tracking in about 20 minutes. Yeah, they say 400 incoming missiles from Russia uh, to strike mainland USA. Uh, that, that's kind of scary. Uh, and it's going to hit in 20 minutes. Uh, they they talk about monitoring stations in Alaska and London have confirmed incoming missiles. Um, and so the president, again, gets linked to Stratcom over a satellite phone. And he's making sure that there's uh, not a hack in the system or it's mm -hmm. not like a, a flaw. So he essentially um, calls to make sure that it's OK. But the military assures the president that there is an air gap in the system. Yeah, that the... The actual system itself that controls the command and control and communicates messages that's separate from the broader Internet. Like if you're not on the system, you can't get to it. I think it's, right. we, we talked about this. We did an episode on, on war games, as any nuclear weapons movie podcast would do. And uh, we go into detail about that. But it's this, this I think, he, was he the Secretary of Defense? I couldn't tell. Gordon, that guy. He seemed like he was speaking for the military. Maybe he was a Joint Chiefs guy. I think I think so. Yeah, uh, I could couldn't tell. But military voice. Uh, says it, it can't possibly be anything but the real thing. You know, no mistake possible. This is not a hack. It's not a mistake. Bombs are incoming. Let's do something about it. Right. Yep. So he's pretty secure in that. Yep. <laughs> and so um, the National Security Advice, uh, NSA recommends starting uh, the night watch. Sir, I recommend initiating night watch continuity of government protocol immediately. Do it. Major, open the football. And one of the staff members playing tennis gets a text to that effect. makes a quick exit. No one can reach um, Secretary McCord because she is kind of playing yeah. <laughs> like a ski ball with her family. Um, I couldn't in, tell. It's supposed to be in D.C. I couldn't tell where that is because there's not yeah. really a – I mean, I don't know of any place in D.C. that just like an open carnival all the time. <laughs> Maybe she was at like Rocket Bar or Penn Commons ah, in Chinatown. <laughs> there we go. There, there we go. That makes <laughs> – that's perfect. So they're, yeah, they're 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 playing. They're having a good time, and yeah, she's she's disconnected from the world. But I guess could be good or a bad thing given what's happening. Right. Yeah. So she got her goal of disconnecting, but then uh, you know nukes are coming. So um, after not being able to reach Secretary McCord, uh, the president says to open the football, and it goes like right on the golf course and everything. So yep, I guess uh, there it's kind of a I don't know if they intended this, but there's the parallel world of the Secretary of State playing skee ball while the president opens up the nuclear football so there are right. <laughs> different different games here 
Um, I, I like how the the president, you know, they, they open the football and the football, which is the, the the emergency satchel, the the box. Essentially, it's like a briefcase. It's like a mobile communication system that allows the president to authenticate and communicate, authenticate who he is or who she is, and talk to the military. Uh, to be able to activate a launch. So that looks pretty accurate. I mean, they don't really see the inside of the box, but the outside of the suitcase, they got props for that. Everything looks good. I don't know if the football is in any other episode of the show. Like, do you always see a guy, usually a military or person behind the president holding the football? Do you see that person in other episodes too, or? No, no. I think this is the first time he's kind of actually actively played a role or like been seen on camera. Okay. From my recollection, anyway. The president and his team are, are out like on the golf course and it's kind of com- com- comically deciding what nuclear attack plan they should be doing. It looks a lot like Tiger Woods and his caddy deciding on whether or not to use a seven iron or an eight wood. Uh, I think those are golf terms that are correct. Um, but they're like debating about whether or not to go big or go small. Uh, some people are recommending major attack option one, which is the most devastating option to stop Russia from hitting us again and that's what the national security advisor and the military guy gordon is recommending and so there's the major attack option one or mao and then there are also limited attack options which is uh lao um, and it's unclear <laughs> i guess if there's an lamo attack <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes and these are kind of all based on their uh operations plans yeah, they, they, I guess there's like more detailed targets they could do. You know, we're going to hit China with this and that. Uh, but really, I guess if they're if you're under the pressure of there's missiles coming from Russia, we don't know what to do. You have three minutes to decide. You don't have time to like pick a la carte from a menu. You have to really go. Let's go with uh, the 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 chef special major attack option one. Right. So they're they're clearly like rushing to make a decision about what to do. Why do you think that that is? Because they're they're not taking the time to to sit and debate this with right. the, the cabinet. They're like, let's go right now. We have yeah. two minutes to decide. Yeah, I think they're kind of having this major time crunch largely because they um, the, the missiles that have been launched are enough to take out an entire leg of the triad. So um, if the missiles do kind of reach these U.S. Uh, silos or our ground-based ICBMs before they're airborne, that's a, a large kind of um, attack on our soil that um, hinders, I guess, our response capabilities as well. Yeah, it seems like all we would have is after that, um, you know, according to the military, is we would have we would have a uh, you know a certain number of submarines with a certain number of missiles, which is probably quite a lot and a lot of warheads there. Uh, and then we would have our bomber fleet, unless they those all get knocked out as well. But yeah, that's kind of seems to be the theory of why we need to to work so quickly. But not everybody's on that same page, though. It looks like uh, the chief of staff, right, is a little questioning of he's the chief of staff. I think he's the chief of staff. He seems like a chief yeah. of staff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he seems to be like, all right, well, what if we do something different? If we launch a full scale nuclear attack, you know, that's going to guarantee nuclear winter, which is kind of funny. Then the national security advisor says, oh, it's just a theory. It's no problem. And you're like, why? Why are we just having these discussions for the first time now? Right. But anyways, it's it's people are definitely under pressure as this is happening. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do think the chief of staff is kind of like a voice of reason, saying, "Hey, maybe nuclear war isn't in our best interest," which is a, a good point to bring up, I guess. Uh, yeah. But what's what's the president? Uh, they, you know, he opens up the suitcase. He's he's told to authenticate his nuclear launch codes. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly the terminology they would use. Um, usually, the the when people think about nuclear launch codes, this is a movie thing. Uh, they think, oh, if you have these codes, you plug them into a computer, missiles get launched. But really, these are just codes. What what they do is they authenticate that the president is the person speaking on the phone with you. It's like call. It's like advanced caller ID, uh, basically. But uh, it looks like they actually do a pretty good job of of demonstrating, as we know in the open literature, of what these things looks like. So why don't you walk us through uh, what the president does there? Yeah, absolutely. So the president takes out this like kind of credit card sized uh, case with the presidential seal on it, like one of those um, souvenir boxes of M&Ms you get after visiting <laughs> the White House or something. Yeah. And um, he cracks it open or cracks it in half to bring out a card. And um, this is called uh, the biscuit. And it has several sets of numbers. Um, some are, are decoys. And then these are numbers that authenticate um, that the president is actually the president. So he or she would have to kind of remember the correct numbers and say it into the phone. Yeah. And this is the thing that the, the new incoming president would be taught this whole process, like before they actually become presidents. Because, you know, as soon as they, they take the oath, 
an attack could be incoming so they get trained on this usually i remember when obama did it and i believe um i think also when when w came in the first time usually they get this training at the blair house out in dc which is like a an old style hotel kind of near near the white house but yeah so then they so then we we see the president he reads the codes he he even reads the attack option one stuff and it's like all right here's what's going to happen and then it, it, we cue the opening credit sequences and we get a 12 hours earlier message. You know, it's one of those like, I can't believe I'm here in this moment. Here's what led me to where I am today. Uh, I don't know. Do you like those kind of plot devices where it then jumps back in time and we see what leads up to that exact moment? I, I kind of do. I like to start off with like kind of like right and running up into the action and then uh, taking the time to say, OK, what went wrong? How did we end up in this particular scenario? So okay. I think... I like it a lot. What about you? Do you like it? Uh, I don't like it as much. I don't like it when it's done multiple times. And I'll admit, you know, I'm spoiling what's happening later. They do it again as well. Yeah, it's kind true. It's kind of neat. I do like um, shows that show you like like a Rashomon type thing where you see the same story from multiple people's perspectives. So I like that. But I don't know. For this one, it's just like, all right, we're gearing up. And then it's like, all right, now we're going to slow everything down and do it again. I guess that works from a TV perspective. But I don't right. like it when it's overdone, but this probably is just as just on the edge of being okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so we get we then we then we kind of get to this like, all right, well, how can they possibly top this? Well, now we go into a hotel room, and there's somebody, uh, you know, and it's a man and a woman in a hotel room, and uh, the, he hear that they're they're you know they're doing stuff, and they're gonna knock on the door, and it's this guy's wife who says, you know, screw you, here's the divorce papers. I'm out of here. And he gets all upset. We tr- we, we learn this guy is, is General Nelson. He's a, a high-ranking person who works in the Pentagon War Room. And I, I love this scene with him talking to the other one of the other military guys that works for him and says, uh, I can't believe uh, I got I got served divorce papers last night. Can you believe this? Ah, oh, it came out of nowhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty reasonable. Pretty reasonable. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so like, well, you're wondering maybe why? Why is this happening? What, why does this scene have to matter? Uh, but then we find out that uh, later on that he, you know, he was in the Pentagon War Room, but not before uh, U.S. Strategic Command out in Nebraska uh, starts to get some hits on its early warning system. Uh, and it actually starts to they start to list off r- real life locations of where Russian missile bases are located. And they say, all right, this place is lighting up. And we really they, they throw out a bunch of really cool, accurate military lingo. They didn't have to use any of these words. They could have made up new acronyms or anything like that, but they talk about, you know, the commander on site there, ask if there's anything on MoLink about this. And, and MoLink is the Moscow-Washington hotline, Moscow-Washington link. And what that is, is, you know, this is kind of when you, you, people usually hear about the red phone, the hotline connection that got started between the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, never was a red phone. It was always kind of mostly some sort of teletype system that would print out information in a long strip because it was easier to translate. Then it became a fax machine and now it's like an email system. Uh, but yeah, MoLink would essentially say if there were, maybe if there was launches accidentally, say somebody pushed the wrong button uh, and missiles started to fly out, there might be a message on MoLink that's like, I'm sorry, this is happening. Here's what actually what this is. Uh, there's also, then the commander asks for uh, SPARS, uh, S-S-P-A-R-S, uh, reports, which is the solid state phased array radar system, uh, which is used to track missiles and space launches from places such as Greenland, UK, and Alaska, which goes back to earlier when they were saying that there was in Alaska and in London and a couple other locations. Uh, but yeah, so there, this everything seems to be working. You know, there's missiles being in the air. Uh, everybody is reading stuff on their screen like it's supposed to be actually, you know, what it's supposed to be. Uh, so then it leads to the president's making a decision. So what, I don't know, what, what what does the president do here? Because, you know, it seems like all signs indicating something's happening. Right, yeah. So because everything does look like it's up, up to par, kind of, so to speak, the president does give the confirmation codes for Major Attack 1 um, out of his attack book binder. Um, <laughs> so many binders. <laughs> first, first of many binders. Right, yeah. Ready to authenticate the nuclear launch codes on your call. Ready for your challenge, Coach General. Tango, Delta, seven, eight, two, two. Victor, November, Niner, five, eight, two. Copy, sir. Your orders? Zulu, Echo, six, two, five, eight. Copy, Mr. President. 
Godspeed, sir. The Cliff Notes kind of description of the plan in the book is, again, a most devastating attack option. Um, targets all potential sites uh, deemed a risk factor, high probability of significant civilian casualties. Um, yeah, and so then General Nelson at the Pentagon War Room, um, which is the National Military Command Center, or the NMCC, goes to send out the EAM, which is the Emergency Action Message that directs nuclear-capable forces to carry out attack plans to the rest of the National Command Authority. But kind of his laptop keeps giving him an error when he's saying uh, he's un unauthorized to uh, do that. And so he should check his password <laughs> or contact an administrator. It's such a funny, such a funny error to get at that moment. It's like right. uh, I happens to me all the time on my laptop and I usually have to contact the IT person and and then maybe to see if the IT person uh, thinks I've been nice to them over the last couple of months. <laughs> but this seems to be something more right. He's not able to get into his laptop for a particular reason. Right. Yeah. So he, he keeps trying and trying and just keeps getting locked out. <laughs> and I guess it turns out that he got his security clearance revoked that morning, uh, which is really fast. So we got a security clearance locked out because uh, of an HR issues, basically because he is under investigation now because of his divorce proceedings. He no longer can do uh, his job. He He's literally about to almost hit enter, send out the EAM to uh, direct someone in a missile silo to push a button and direct maybe even possibly the submarine commanders to to do their thing. And someone comes right in and says, nope, you're really strict about this. You, you lost your clearance. I don't care if we're in the middle of a shooting war with the Russians. You have to come and fill out some paperwork. General Nelson. What? Your security clearance has been revoked under the Personnel Reliability Program. We're at war, damn it. And you must leave the building. What the hell is this about? You're divorced, General. <laughs> casual yeah yep and so this all happens kind of as president is boarding uh air force one and is told that the pentagon is unable to give the launch um order due to the hr issue so they need to reissue the order to track them so I, this is something interesting i don't know if this is true or not I'm, I'm totally would be willing to say that it is maybe the people who write this episode uh know more than i do but i would have assumed that once the president authenticates a, an order that there are more people listening on the line and it's not just the pentagon war room that Stratcom would also be on the phone writing to, you know, they want to hear the orders. They don't want to be CC'd on the email later. Like they want to hear what's supposed to be happening so they can coordinate. I would have assumed personally that that would have, that once the president authenticates that order, it goes to everybody, you know, because otherwise you get into the situation is what happens if, as the president authenticates the order, the Pentagon is hit and the president yeah. is hit. And then you no longer have somebody, you have to go down the line to the next level of continuity for someone to do this. I would have thought that they would have been listening on the call and that would have counted as authentication. But, you know, for the purposes of the show, probably that makes sense. And and I'm willing to concede if someone wants to, to at me on Twitter and tell me that this is actually how it would work, that you only can send a message and a launch order to one of these different places at a time because you can send it to the military Pentagon war room. Uh, you can send it to the National Command Authority. You can send it to it's like you can send it to Raven Rock, which is our site R at Raven Rock, which is the, the military's kind of super secret bunker facility in Pennsylvania. Uh, you can send it to the Boeing E-4 Advanced Airborne Command Post, otherwise known, funny enough, as Nightwatch. Uh, you can send it to that. Basically, it's a flying air, airplane command center. Um, you know, it got the name Nightwatch because of from a Rembrandt painting. This is such a weird way that this world works. It was a Rembrandt painting called The Nightwatch, which showed local townsfolk protecting a town. Uh, and the name was selected by the squadron's first commanding officer. So you can send those to any number of these places. Maybe you can only send it to one at a time. But I would have thought that all people would be CC'd on these messages. But, but anyways, right? So that the president... This time around, he hesitates before wanting to give this Stratcom order. He reads his out of his binder. But either way, right, the colonel who's at now uh, Stratcom gives out the EAM and says, quote, there is no turning back now. All right, so the message is out. The EAM has been sent. Uh, who gets it on the other line? Yeah, so then you cut to a conversation of two young men in a launch control center underground being uh, interrupted by message 272 telling them uh, to unlock the launch keys. Here we go. Not a drill. Unlock launch keys? I agree. I have a match. Authentication confirmed. Built up. 
insert launch keys. So they grab um, some more binders, their fancy <laughs> red binders this time. And these are weapon system operation checklists for ICBM launch control. And um, essentially, these are the launch control author officers authenticate the message. Um, they build up, kind of begin to insert the launch keys, and then they get ready to do something. And then we kind of cut away, right? We we go back to the Secretary of State. Uh, someone finally gets a hold of her. It looks like her maybe her her Secret Service detail uh, gets a hold of her. Um, she gets she gets basically told what's happening. But she decides instead of seeking shelter with everyone else in the military, just to stay with her kids and her and her husband, uh, playing their plan. I think the kids are playing air hockey uh, before the missiles start to fall. So they decide it's too late. We're just going to stay together as a family. We have a helicopter on top of the unified building. We have to hurry. No, no, I, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm, I'm going to stay with my family. Actually, that was a pretty powerful moment. Um, right. Having having them kind of gripped together, looking at their kids, because I guess the husband knows what's happening, but the kids have no idea. That's a really, really powerful scene. And we have, we, that, that, that's replicated too, right, on Air Force One. Where uh, the, the, um, the chief of staff kind of wonders whether to call his family to warn them about the attack. Um, but the president just kind of simply asks, what's the point? So everyone's kind of like resignation kind of at this point. Yep. And, and, here's, and here's where it goes to commercial and we come back and we do another one of these five minutes earlier messages and maybe this is where i decided it felt a little bit bad and again i don't want to hate the show like I, this the show is very entertaining the episode we saw is there's a personal thing for me i don't really like the, right. the those five minute later things unless it's done in like a comedic way this is way it's it's a pretty <sighs> dramatic one uh we see the the colonel from earlier who says it's no turning back now uh he gives the launch order and the launch officers are about to do major attack option one. It's not looking good, but then we get this uh, other military commander. He runs into Stratcom and just starts yelling, "Abort! Abort!" Uh, and he pushes the colonel out of the way. I don't, I don't know how that would work um, in terms of like the security on site. And he types in like violently a new EAM uh, message, and we see over in Minot Missile Base, uh, the missile wing there, the silo-covered doors slowly start to open. I, I would, I actually, I'm pretty sure they tend to, when they're under attack, like, explode open, because they don't have time for it to slowly, like, open, like, a garage door. Um, they open up. One of the launch officer uh, turns the key, because they're both supposed to turn them at the same time. Uh, one of them turns the key all the way, but the other one hears, like, a beep, Right. And right. and a message on the screen that says abort, and you it turns back to the uh, that other officer, and they haven't turned their key yet. Uh, so I guess we at least for this one particular missile silo, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, exactly. And so night watch is kind of successfully called off, and we the camera goes back to Madam Secretary, and she kind of faints with joy and um, I guess relief. And I think that's also pretty powerful, like watching her all the stress kind of come off of her in one second. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was she was really good. Uh, Tia Leone is awesome, and she's really good in this role. It's exactly yeah. the kind of reaction you would expect someone to have in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. And so then after we see that, now we see her and her kids kind of, or her kids kind of finish out their air hockey game and they didn't mm -hmm. have any idea. So I think that's pretty powerful as well. And now, uh, and the, really the rest of the episode are a lot of meetings, a lot of uh, Oval Office discussions, <clears throat> you know, some a little more heated. We get the, the chief of staff saying that the, that POTUS was almost head faked into starting Armageddon, which I, I thought that was a pretty a pretty good line. Now they're debating about what happened. Like, what could have possibly have caused this mistaking uh, attack from happening? And uh, yeah, what 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 ends up happening? What what is this whole series of events get taking place? So General Bradley at Stratcom had wanted to stress test his new equipment, so he asked IT to set up a simulation over the weekend that he could run when he got back to the office, um, and he didn't tell anyone. And the primary system failed before turning to the backup that had the simulation. Yep, I guess he said, I like the joke was he didn't, couldn't want to be bothered to come in on over the weekend. He's like, oh, why don't you set this up on Friday and then on Monday we'll run the, the simulation on the backup. Um, right. And uh, <laughs> at, at first there's a bunch of, of kind of passing references. The National Security Advisor asked how this could possibly have happened since we, quote, changed the simulation procedure after 79. 
Uh, and at first, we're not really sure what that means. They eventually mention it. But I thought this was really cool. I think this is really where you get a lot of the the input that people like Bruce Blair and that whole crowd of people who cons were consulted about the episode. You know, you can see them bringing in this interesting history. This particular incident was early morning in November 1979. Programmers at NORAD, which is, you know, what used, it's a system that's used to, nowadays it's used to track Santa Claus on Christmas, or Christmas, <laughs> on Christmas Eve, uh, where, where, where Santa Claus is. Uh, but what, really what NORAD does is it tracks, you know, all kind of space activity, including missile launches uh, and kind of what's happening. And they almost started World War Three back in 1979. By accidentally running a simulation. National Security Advisor at the time, uh, Brzezinski, uh, he was told that the Russians had launched 2,200 nuclear missiles at the United States. The famous story about this was that he decided, you know, similar to the chief of staff and the secretary of state here in the show, was he decided not to tell his wife about this. He didn't want to tell his wife. He didn't want to wake them up. He didn't want to want to worry them. Uh, his big motivation was is if, that if he was going to go down, if it was true that they were about to be destroyed, then he wanted... Uh, to have the the Russians join him. He says if America would cease to exist, he wanted to make sure we had company. So that was his first thought uh, after deciding he wasn't going to be telling his, his, his wife about the attack. Fortunately, he was told a few minutes later that it was just a mistake, that no other <laughs> missile uh, monitoring system around the world had actually seen the incoming strike. So it must have been a mistake. He never told Jimmy Carter, the president, until much later. And it was kind of seen as an error by a lot of observers because the president, if even it was of a false alarm, you know, you get to tell the president and his team so that he can get taken away to somewhere safe. I guess what happened was, was that the... Um, they tried to run a simulation and that since then uh, this, you know, procedure change was that they would remove uh, all of the training activities, the simulations, all of those things, which are back then were on like cassette tapes and training tapes. They would move those to a separate new offsite facility. And that's where they would do all these things. But apparently in this TV show, uh, General Bradley decided that he didn't trust the offsite location and just decided to ignore the rule and brought the training simulation onto uh, the actual system itself, which is, I wondered if the IT person would have noticed those rules. Maybe they weren't trained up on this. They were just told to do something. So they don't <laughs> yeah. care. They just do that. So it's a, uh, it's kind of funny that there would have been a full scale launch if it wasn't for general Nelson committing an affair, which caused his security clearance to be revoked at the exact same moment, which delayed the launch order by just a few minutes. And that was all it took to recognize the, mistake but if if he had decided that day that he was oh you know i'll commit an affair the next morning or the next day right. we would have been in a bad situation here yeah absolutely but this isn't this isn't the only time that's happened in real life do you can you remember any other examples of uh you know false alarms and, and nuclear attacks in our real life that turned out weren't actually real oh yeah absolutely so um kind of other real life examples include like in 1950s i think a flock of birds triggered a distant early warning line radar and it kind of looked like a soviet bomber attack um and so that's something <laughs> and then again in the 1960s a meteor shower and lunar radar reflections triggered the a bm early warning system at uh, norad and then again in the 1980s we had a bad chip which is a the fail safe kind of whole uh, scenario and then back in, in 1995 there was an incident with a norwegian rocket as well that, yeah that, that one looked like because uh, norwegian this norwegian rocket uh, had very similar <laughs> missile parts for uh parts for the rocket that looked like icbms the u.s told the russians that this was going to happen that this was a regular commercial launch but then that communication never made its way up the chain until much later and that was one of the few examples of in real life history where the nuclear football was actually opened and activated but never used on the russian side when they they call theirs i think the the chaget uh, which is named after a mountain in russia one more fun story i like to add here is the one i think i've told before on the podcast but i love it uh scott sagan who uh, you know people know for being a, a scholar on nuclear deterrence and why nuclear weapons are not aren't so good uh he told a story about a, at a missile base in minnesota during the cuban missile crisis a guard mistook a bear for a soviet saboteur which sounds like an onion headline um <laughs> but an intruder alarm was sounded made warning bells go off at other missile bases in the region i guess the thought would be if someone is trying Trying to infiltrate one missile base, there are probably other people trying to infiltrate the other one, uh, so that they could stop some the U.S. from being able to retaliate from an attack. So at Volk Airfield, the warning bells were were wired up wrong, and instead of it being an intruder alert, it, it was signaling that there was an incoming nuclear attack. 
caused all of the nuclear-armed jets to scramble, looking for enemies around the area, trying to figure out what was happening. And it t- eventually they figured out, oh no, it was just a bear who caused a wire to go off, who caused other wires to go off, who triggered a nuclear attack warning. So you can see how quickly these things, people think that they are constantly uh, prepared and everything. There's like backups to the backups, but it's it's a hard situation to bear. So yeah, so the, the rest of the episode isn't really more about, you know, more tense moments, but it's, you kind of get into politics and planning of of how to respond here. What do you think of how the rest of this episode plays out? It's kind of interesting. I think someone in the audience at our show kind of mentioned how it was like no fighting in the war room uh, from Strange Love. <laughs> so I think it was pretty fun. But the Secretary of State kind of calls to de-alert the ICBMs, which in, um, that means kind of taking the warheads out of the missiles. So um, it takes time to prepare a launch, um, leaving more time to kind of think and kind of let more time pass in order to avoid accidents. And she kind of lays out the scenario we see, um, what she calls insanity. That means Stratcom has three minutes to make the call to the crisis coordinator, who has two minutes to call the president. And then POTUS has five minutes to make a decision. I talk about vulnerability. It's insanity. After what happened today, how could we come to any other conclusion? Yeah, maybe you should stay in your lane, Elizabeth. Not if you're going to blow up the entire okay. highway. It's a pretty tight time frame to yeah. make very drastic decisions. I, I barely wake up that quickly after my alarm goes off in the morning, <laughs> right. uh, let alone, like, I, can you imagine being a, a dead asleep? And then Brzezinski calls you and says, all right, here's what's happening. Make a decision in five minutes. And you're like. I don't I don't do nuclear attack uh, plans before coffee. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it is very yeah, it's a tight timeline, uh but a lot of the other people in the room in the Oval Office don't like this idea. Uh the National Security Advisor and the military people are all like no, we can't do this. It would put too much pressure on the other legs of the triad, the bombers and the submarines. And this is a fun argument I hear a lot in in the literature and people make this argument a lot. They love this phrase. There's a reason why a stool has three legs. Uh, which is always kind of funny. There, at one point, call, he calls her um, too emotional, right? Like she can't be yeah. making any decisions, and that was not a thing you want to say to <laughs> to anybody, let alone the Secretary of State, who's this, who's this like no no nonsense person. That's the game we're in, and it's not going to change. Why are you so dug in that you you can't even see another point? I'm of not going to argue. You're obviously having an emotional reaction. Normally, I would have a problem with a man telling me that I was emotional at work. But after what happened today, after thinking that I was seeing my kids for the very last time, you are damn right I'm emotional. And baby, emotion is what's missing from the stupid so-called logic behind our dehumanized nuclear posture. And that that point when um, the sec def did call um, Madam Secretary too emotional, um, the entire like crowd at our screen again <laughs> just like sighed. And I also think it's funny to point out the entire reason this like um, they are giving rationale to this nuclear strike was because the president, Russian president, who was a, who was a man, was too moody. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's kind of hypocritical to say that again here. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. That is the setup for this. Right. Yeah. But they do do a pretty good job of countering um, this a little bit where they – one of the other people that's pressing the um, – you know, to keep the missiles on high alert, on ready alert. Because high alert, ready alert is kind of like the debate people say about lingo of whether or not you're pro-abortion or pro-choice or uh, those kind of things. Because it depends on what word you use kind of indicates a little bit about what your position is. Like when you say missiles are on high alert – means that you probably think that they are on hair trigger alert. Like those phrases kind of indicate to you, to the person listening, that you're someone who wants to take them off of that status. Other people who are like, no, this is the safe way to have it so that it can be ready to respond, often call it ready alert. I think that's kind of funny. But the one, the national security advisor is, is a woman. She's a, looks like an older woman. I don't know anything about her character, if she's in other episodes or anything. But, you know, she's she makes the case pretty strong that during a crisis, this is, this is I think this is a reasonable argument to make. And what if there's a crisis and we have to go back on alert? A frenetic and unstable re-alerting race could spiral into a launch. That could be managed. Uh, the people have to counter if you want to de-alert your weapons, which is in a crisis, if uh, everything is demated and de-alerted, you decide, all right, well, I'm going to signal to the other side that I'm going to get ready to use my weapons. Or I just need to be ready because I think an attack's coming. But maybe you're not ready to attack just yet. But if you mate the weapons with the warheads, you know, the missiles and the warheads, that can signal to the other side, 
an, an, a first strike a first strike is about to happen so you have to worry about escalation control and how quickly things can messages can get can go wrong in terms of your signaling or maybe you're not trying to signal anything there's a good debate happening there and it's not being made only by a bunch of white military men it's being made by you know the female national security advisor so i thought that was a good piece to this discussion as well yeah exactly me too i think that's very important because while it's important to kind of include women's voices it's also important to remember that not all women's voices are going to be the same so i think that's a really yeah. good highlight at that point point. And, and finally the, this discussion kind of ends with the president uh saying all right i want some more information i want to sleep on this idea and this chief of staff makes a moral argument which I thought was pretty compelling about how the current launch procedure forces the president and the military to essentially act like robots. That once this stuff happens, there's no moment for moral discussion or clarity about what they're doing. It's just, all right, if this happens, A, B, C, D, end of world. There's no right. point in this uh, where they can kind of, because of the high pressure that that's put into it, they can't wait for a missile to hit somewhere in the United States and then go, all right, we actually are under attack. Now let's respond. You have to basically acrobatically. But what happens to the the rest of the episode? Yeah, so the rest of the episode, we kind of um, go back to Secretary of State's uh, family. And so they're continuing to like bicker and like, you know, be on their phones or whatever. And now because um, the Madam Secretary kind of realized that, hey, the world didn't end, uh, she seems it in a more like a loving kind of nice <laughs> lens, I guess. And the parents kind of, again, reflect back on what they just went through. Um, and then she uh, gets a visit from the president who kind of wants to open up a back channel with the Russians to kind of talk about mutual de-learning of the missiles. So kind of she wants to reignite, um, I guess, arms control talks between the two countries so that this doesn't actually like actualize itself future. But then, then we're also, you know, we, you mentioned earlier about the guy playing tennis uh, who gets the, the message and he just says, All right, I got to go. It's a babysitting thing. And he, and he leaves. And then we find out later, right, that the, he actually was kind of taken away to another location and the rest of these staff members uh do these staff members are they in other episodes and have their own kind of stories and everything yeah exactly there's like a, a storyline kind of with with in each scene where they pay into a new uh, a new kind of character they all have their own kind of storyline as well in previous seasons okay up to this point uh well these guys are all they're all sitting around a, a table at a bar um somewhere in dc and and talking about you know people getting these messages that, that they're gonna be swift away to mount weather uh, and it turns out this is a real location, Mount Weather Emergency Operations Center. It's now run by FEMA, uh, but it's where the quote-unquote lucky civilian government officials and other high-level people go in the event of a national or natural disaster or a national disaster. So it could be, you know, a nuclear attack. It could be any sort of major thing that people are taken away from. This facility is also mentioned in another movie that I'm going to be covering on the podcast in coming weeks uh, or coming months, maybe uh, seven days in May. Uh, they call it Mount Thunder, but it's it's pretty clear that it's what this is. And uh, I don't know if you watch the X-Files, but it's also in the season finale, series finale, like the last episode of the X-Files in 2002 anyways. Uh, they mentioned Matt Weather. But yeah, this, this staff member is not too happy that he's on this list because he they joke about, oh, you're going to be one of the people that gets to survive this. And, you know, he's got a different perspective on it, right? Well, let me let me just <laughs> tell you what that particular privilege buys you. You get whisked away. You do. Mm -hmm. Without saying goodbye to your friends and family. And then you get to be in an underground bunker with generals and top government brass for weeks or months eating MREs and drinking ionized water. You emerge after the radiation is reduced to livable levels, at which point you get to try to pick out your loved one's bones from the rubble and ash. And then you spend however many years running the bombed out husk of the former United States government under martial law. It's not a list that you want to be on. It means that he will be kind of without his friends or his family, and he has to kind of continue to do this work while everyone like dies around him, and it's kind of a depressing scenario. Yeah, he mentions that you know he'll have to come out of the rubble, and if he doesn't die of radiation poisoning, he will have to help run the remains of remnants of the government under martial law. I think that's an important aspect because any good post-nuclear war fiction should really delve on how important it will be. It won't be like the president still running a democracy after a large-scale nuclear attack, after any sort of large-scale you know military invasion of this nature. You know, the movie Threads does a really terrific job of this, of showing government will turn most likely into martial 
martial law because you'll need to have rationing of food and water and you'll need to force people who are largely going to be like psychologically damaged by the attack. You'll force them probably using food or the threat of violence into work and that work could be burying bodies, burning bodies, cleaning up rubble, forcing them into agriculture where there's stuff can possibly can grow. Like it's going to get pretty bad and it's not just going to be the old country, you know, coming out of the bunker and, and having some sort of semblance like the idea that you'll be running this under martial law and this guy who probably volunteered to be because he likes democracy and he wants to be a public servant is now going to be one of the people who will be leading this if you know if he decides to do it it's not a great list to be on yeah i kind of started to bring it down there but i think that's kind of a i'm glad that they have that in there uh, but the episode does end on a more hopeful note, right? The the Secretary of State gets their de-alerting treaty with the Russians. There's still some resistance from the military and the U.S. Senate. But how do they get around that? Because they they need they, they want to do a treaty. They don't just want to de-alert, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, I guess right. the, the idea is that if they do a treaty, then it's more legally binding. It's harder to the, for the next president to roll it back. But obviously the Senate and the military is not too happy about it. So how do they go about breaking through the gridlock in Washington? Yeah, I think what her main kind of uh, plan is, is to just declassify the recent scare and um, all the other scares that have happened. So like they're they're willing to like go public with all the close calls, I guess, that um, we've been to to nuclear war. Mm -hmm. And so she really wants to get like kind of show people. When in the, we're considering this decision-making process, it's important to like show how dangerous the current kind of nuclear posture is, and like how easy it is to really devolve into conflict just because of like simple accidents type thing. And so I think a good way to just summarize it is she just really wants to like kind of scare the crap out of America mm-hmm. to make um, DC function properly, which I think is a really good tactic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the the president goes on TV and and uh, essentially says, "All right, here's what happened recently. Here's what's happened all the other times. We've got a treaty to solve it." Uh, so it's not just be scared, but here's the solution. The plan works. You know, enough pressure gets put on the Senate. Um, I guess the, there's some probably some rallies, probably some some protests. It doesn't. It's not clear how long it takes, but the Senate ratifies the treaty. Everybody gets to resume their the lives that they were leading at the very beginning of the episode, whether it's playing tennis, um, whether it's walking their dog. Any of those things. The president goes back to playing golf, but the national security advisor and the joint chiefs person, Gordon, they refuse to join the golf game because uh, I guess they're they're not too happy about it. And that's how they're going to protest. <laughs> that's that's their resistance uh, right. to, to not playing golf. Then the episode ends. And I guess this is maybe going to set up the next season, season five, uh, that the secretary of state says she wants to run for president to continue fixing things, to keep her success uh, moving forward. Uh, and I guess the next season will have some of those nuclear plots uh, still ongoing. Um, is that right? I guess they're going to yep. continue that storyline. Yeah. So I think the first uh, the season uh, premiere, I think, is going to kind of talk more about the com- complexities of kind of continuing the deal learning process and kind of continuing arms control agreements and talks. So it should be an interesting uh, introduction to the news next uh, season. That's awesome. Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep watching the show week to week, but I will definitely watch the season premiere on October 7th at uh, what time? 10 p.m. on CBS. T- 10 p.m. Eastern Time, CBS. Uh, they're gonna do, they're gonna do the next season. So I, yeah, I'll, I'll probably check out at least that first episode. So yeah, so that's the 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 nuclear plot here. Uh, the whole thing. I think it would be good now to do. Um, we normally do our parking lot movie discussion, which is you know something I used to do as a kid uh, when we would go see a movie and we would then talk about it with our friends in the parking lot uh, before we went our separate ways. Well, this is a TV show, so this is more like a water cooler chat, asking your your coworkers what you saw on the TV over the weekend. So what do you uh, what do you think about the nuclear plot? Did you think overall that it was was realistic that it was was it interesting was it entertaining to you as someone in the field yeah no i think it was super entertaining um even though like i do kind of deal with nuclear issues a lot all the time i think it's still kind of fun to go in and see an episode that characterizes kind of very realistically and again um i think this was one of the i really enjoyed how they brought in um experts to kind of make Mm -hmm. sure that their their nuclear kind of dialogue is pretty accurate and so i think a lot of times when you go and you like watch something that you do all day you you have a lot of room to critique it and here i think it was it was pretty pretty uh airtight and i really enjoyed that um i i did find it also really realistic i think that uh, the whole kind of concept of accidents happen. I think that was very well portrayed here in a way that wasn't so like Armageddon-y as like in the earlier kind of movies like Failsafe or stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I really, I, I really like that. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, you know, I would say that the the first half of the episode, what's it's just about the mistake that took place and how quickly people essentially just go into a rote routine uh, was super realistic. And it's very scary to see that happening. You know, to me, it was a little bit weird because I don't really know any of these characters. So to, to see Leone and her family um, going through this, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I could. I understand that that's a big deal, but I don't really know her. I don't know how she normally responds to things. So I'll say for the credit of the show, me as a person coming just in cold, did a really good job of showing the decision points, the pressure that all these people are under. In a, in a way, it almost kind of made it a little bit more interesting to me that I didn't know who these people were. And I still felt that they were under this tremendous amount of pressure. You know, anytime there's a scene where the president is like breaking out the football and discussing codes, my, my brain often goes and says, all right, well, I've seen this so many different times. What what kind of place are they going to borrow from? Are they going to do uh, strange love? Are they going to do, you know, some of all fears? Like, how are they going to pull this together? But they do it in such a unique and really cold, realistic way that in mm-hmm. a way it's probably very realistic to how it would happen unless you're you got a, a president who's a little more uh, volatile. But I think that is a really strong point because it is trying to underline about how, you know, there's a message behind this. This is this is cold, rational thinking. There's no emotion involved, which also means morals. There's no moral calculation into this. It's if this happens, uh, you need to do attack option one. And there's no discussion about what that actually means, which is the death of probably hundreds of thousands of people, the destruction of, of you know, per bomb, millions overall around the world, the end of civilization as we know it, the martial law being instituted, people dying of radiation poisoning and, and burns and fires. Like, you don't get any of that from those little moments. You just see people solemnly flipping through binders and picking codes and reading them and plugging them into computers, you know, and turning keys. You know, I think that that's meant to be a criticism. And I, I think that that is a, a really good portrayal portrayal of that in a pretty interesting way. Now, but the second half of the episode is I they haven't mentioned this on the panel discussion. It's just it's like a little like a West West Wing style. I don't know if you if the West Wing was a little bit too much before your time, but yeah, it, it, for, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> for, for me, it was it was hitting right on the spot. Like I didn't watch the show until the last couple seasons live, like as it was happening. But it was a big part of why I would decided to join a political campaign to come to DC. All of these different things were because of the show and I rewatching it now. It's really hard to watch because it's very much, Oh, here's how you solve problems in Washington. You give a good speech. You have the the strong rational argument. You get the people on your side. Uh, but that doesn't always happen that way, especially when it comes to treaties about demating nuclear weapons. I mean, that's going to be a, if that ever happens, it's going to be a really big deal. It might take a moment like this, a crisis like this that gets people motivated to do it. But um, it's not like, at least today, that all of these other close calls or broken arrows or things like that are super hidden. There are lots of books written about them. There are movies about them. There are, you know, we, we've covered these on the podcast before. A lot of these stories are out there. If you read the book Command and Control, if you watch the documentary Command and Control, you can see a lot of these close calls that have been taking place. But certainly hasn't motivated people to the public Anyways, yeah, I almost think that if the the plot had or chosen to do kind of a more uh, irrational president, kind of like that kind of type, take that approach instead, mm-hmm. or maybe like showing like the Russian side of, of a similar thing. If we have an irrational president, I think that could almost be a little more hard hitting today to kind of uh, encourage people to think about this again, just because of our current, I guess, situation here in D.C. There's a pretty good movie out there that's called Deterrence. Uh, it stars Kevin Pollack as a president who there's a crisis going on in the Middle East and he is doing some sort of campaign rally or something and he's stuck somewhere in, I think, Colorado. He's snowed in uh, at, a, at this like resort and they're trying to – he's like, no, we need – he's like in a, in a rational way, pro-military attack. Let's do everything we can. And it's kind of this weird, like, why are you doing this right now story? And it's all basically takes place in one room. Uh, Kind of interesting. So that's a different comparison to the more rational, even keeled president here. Um, But how how well do you think the show portrays, you know, some of the real, you know, some of the work that you do with with women of mass destruction? Like, how well do you think it portrays, you know, women working in national security field as you someone trying to, to break into this field? Do you feel like this is accurate portrayal of those kind of discussions? I, I would say yes. Um, I think Sayo Leone's character is, uh, has gotten a lot of kind of 
Um, she's very well-developed character, and I think she's getting a lot of respect from her male colleagues, including her president. Um, and I think that's very important to her mind. But I also think I like how they include that, like, even though she's like, has a lot of agency and she is doing a lot, they just still include, like, there's kind of like that old bureaucratic, like DC kind of military type persona that still doesn't necessarily as like opening or as, mm -hmm. as receptive to her leadership. And I don't know, I don't necessarily know if that's just um, a gender thing or if it's more kind of a, a, a just the inner workings of DC type thing. But I do think that it's important that while she's respected and she's getting um, things done, there is still kind of a, a slight friction, even though it's not like necessarily as awful as it would have been in like uh, the 80s or whatever. So I think that it just shows a good um, it shows a good example of kind of how like women are like still do they're clearly here and they're here to play, but there is still kind of some like institutionalized, I guess, doubt a little bit. Was that a was that a big part of like maybe some of the early seasons of the show? I think it's kind of meant to be assumed that she is the equivalent of like a Hillary Clinton Secretary of State type thing. So they do mention Madeleine Albright um, um, and other important women uh, in national security. So I think a lot of the earlier episodes are focused kind of on her character development and um, kind of showing like I guess like they spend a lot of time kind of like developing her credibility. Like she's clearly like she's a professor at the school, mm -hmm. um, so she clearly knows what she's doing. And I think a lot of time is spent doing that. Um, and she, but I don't necessarily think that it has to build up a lot of her like credibility but um it does kind of show like i think in one episode there's an episode where a president like grabs her butt or whatever and like she slaps him and like so that was like a <laughs> that was a pretty fun episode but so i think there's like it still shows the difficulties of it but i i think i also kind of respect it because it doesn't necessarily spend too much time on trying to like stoke her credibility because it's kind of a pre-given that she's already pretty like qualified for the position cool excellent uh sorry so we usually end our episodes by uh doing a rating system because uh, you know we want to be consistent so we have a a one through five rating uh one being you know low i don't like it very much five being i really like it but you know because we get super critical about the topics we want to i really like to be super critical about my rating system uh so for this one i'm going to do here uh one out of five invitations to a secret government fallout bunker uh because one invitation is you know it's enough to survive a nuclear war but it's you know you'll just be you uh but five means you can invite four of your buddies and you'll have a great time over there so i i'm going to give this one a four a solid four uh i really like the story uh the, the first like two-thirds of the episode you know very well done i love the accuracy for most of the plot points here really drives home how scary this would be for people in, in terms of their decision making i'm just maybe i'm just a pessimist about how a de-alerting treaty would end up happening so i think to me that may be fitting with the show so i'm willing to give it a little bit of uh, slack there that maybe how the show resolves a lot of these things obviously i like the west wing and most of their stories are very similar but that's only thing that keeps it for me in a solid five but it's definitely a strong recommendation that i would give to people uh, that are interested in these kind of topics what about you how many how many invitations to a secret government fallout bunker would you give this one yeah, I, I think I would also do it for. Um, I do agree that it's kind of a bit melodramatic at points, just because I think that's the nature of the show. It gets, it does get a little like a little drama y for me, but I really enjoyed how well the women in the show were portrayed, as well as how well um, the accident kind of escalation aspect was portrayed. Um, and I. I also thought it kind of seemed to fizzle out near the end when we got towards the more bureaucratic things. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that it was probably just a segue to the next season. So I'm excited to see kind of the, the next season premiere and see how they're going to continue with this thread. Good, solid recommendation. Uh, so speaking of uh, recommendations, usually uh, the, we also like to have at the end of the episode a few things that if you liked listening to this topic and if you liked the episode of the TV show, kind of what else could you use to uh, watch or read or something that's very similar? Uh, I'll recommend a few things here. Maybe you have something to recommend, uh, but I'll first recommend three other movies that we've covered on our podcast uh, before. If you if you haven't seen or listened to those episodes, uh, Ladybug, Ladybug from 1963, uh, which is about a false missile scare uh, that means and, and it's how a, a teachers and students in like an elementary school, how they deal with these issues, whether or not it's it, the missile attack is real or not. It's really a terrific, scary story. Uh, I also recommend the movie Failsafe from 1964 and War Games from 1983. Uh, again, both stories about presidents um, dealing with either false alerts, false uh, false uh, messages of attack, uh, sometimes caused by uh, sentient computers, other times caused by you know glitches in the software. 
I think those are really good stories and really complete out this literature. And I think that this episode of Madam Secretary gets to fit into that genre pretty well and will be welcomed by people that are interested in this topic. Uh, I also recommended a New York Times article from January 2018. Uh, it was written in the wake of this Hawaii missile scare. It's called Causes of False Missile Alerts, The Sun, The Moon, and a 46-Cent Chip. Uh, so it kind of talks about that story that we mentioned earlier about the computer chip malfunction. So check that out. Uh, I'd also finally recommend an article in Foreign Affairs magazine from September slash October 2002 called The Death of a Treaty. It was written by Terry DeBell from the National War College. It's about the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty vote in October 1999 in the U.S. Senate and about how politics got intermixed with national security arguments. Uh, it was one of the things that got me into this field was was watching those debates and reading about those debates kind of made me want to work for people that I ended up working for, which was, you know, at the time, Senator Joe Biden, because he was one of the floor leaders on, the, on that debate. You know, hearing those things is why I'm in this field. But it's also very depressing because the treaty was voted down largely as a response to Clinton not being impeached. And a lot of the national security arguments got ignored. And it shows that even though the public was like 70% in favor of the CTBT treaty, it was not enough to get people to vote for the treaty itself, which at the time required a two-thirds vote in the U.S. Senate. So I think that's a unfortunately a pessimistic response to kind of how the public support for an arms control treaty doesn't necessarily translate into its success you know clearly different from the episode because the episode was involved of like scaring people as opposed to people thinking yeah arms control is great because it makes peace but versus if you don't do this we're going to have another one of these crises different story but i you know you want to see a little bit of a different historical perspective on it uh check out the article uh the death of a treaty jamie do you have anything you'd recommend to, to people yeah, actually, um, there was just a short film released. So as you may know, um, earlier this week on September 26th, that was the 35th anniversary of the day um, a Russian soldier called Stanislav Petrov um, yep. kind of sold, saved the world. Um, and so this week, there was a short film released, um, and it's called The Man Who Saved the World. And it's about the Cold War story about how this one man uh, kind of ended or stopped, prevented uh, a nuclear strike uh, that would have like escalated the world into World War III. But it's a it's a pretty cool uh, movie and kind of really timely as it, again, it was just the 35th anniversary. And I think it relates back to the theme of like escalation control and accidents. So this was a story, right, where uh, the, the Russians thought the U.S. was attacking Russia. And this person was like, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. And I think this is really not the right thing. Let's hold off. They were like in a, sub a submarine and it was like uh, four of them and they needed three to move on and one or all four to in order to launch. And he, he was the only one who said no. And it turned out he was right. His gut feeling was right. Uh, if I remember right, the story is pretty sad because his life was ruined for a little while after that. I think that's the story. I, w I want to see the documentary to confirm that. I know that was the, 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 the word on the street was that he lost promotions and things like that since then because he was disobeying orders. But he was yeah. right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, oh, cool. That's excellent. Anything else, sir? That's a that's a pretty good recommendation. Um, yeah, I think I think that's all I have, really. Uh, excellent. Well, th thanks very much uh, for those recommendations and for coming on the podcast today. Uh, I appreciate you skyping over from a early morning in California uh, over thanks. there. Uh, so thanks very yeah. much. Where can people find you on on Twitter on your website? Let's let's uh, let's share those one more time before we end up. Yeah. So you can uh, follow me on Twitter at my personal account, which is at Jamie Withhorn. Or you can follow my website, which is at woman underscore WMD. And my website, again, is www.womenofmassdestruction.org. Uh, and, and that's Jamie Withorn, so it's J-A-M-I-E-W-I-T-H-O-R-N-E. Yep, right? That's correct. I like to, yep. uh, I never can spell things unless I have them spelled to me. So that's great. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. thanks. thank you very much for, ha for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions uh, for future episodes, future guests, or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. And also the old-fashioned way, email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, Okay, why don't you go on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, leave a five-star review, and, and tell us what uh, future episodes and things that we should be covering here. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Jamie Withorn. And remember, 
If it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.